welcome to the Greener Grass Podcast from Bluebird Botanicals. I'm your host, Lex Pelger. Today is a fascinating talk with someone right here in Colorado. In fact, we recorded the interview at the picnic table behind the Bluebird office. Today's guest is Rafael Lancelotta, and he covers many topics, including his interest in therapy and his knowledge about the 5-MeO-DMT molecule. We also get to hear about his new work in body-focused psycholytic therapy. In the interview, he refers to his place of employment as Innate Path, but they recently changed their name to the Knowing Body Center. They specialize in harnessing the power of ketamine and cannabis to help their body-focused work. I'll put their link in the episode notes along with the paper that Raphael co-wrote on 5-MeO-DMT. Thanks to Justin Weiss for introducing me to his excellent friend. Now, here's Raphael. This show is brought to you by Bluebird Botanicals to spread education about cannabis and other things on the greener side of life. Bluebird CBD oil comes from farms in southern Colorado and is grown using only water, soil, and sunlight. Go to bluebirdbotanicals.com for more info. Hello, everybody. I am out back behind Bluebird Botanicals with Rafael Lancelotta. Thanks for coming to join us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. And so you have a lot of interesting things we can talk about. Uh, but before we get into the cannabis and ketamine treatments and things like what 5-MeO-DMT is, um, can you tell me about maybe what you wanted to be when you were a little kid? Well, when I was really young, uh, probably the first thing that I can remember is I wanted to be an inventor. And my whole goal was I wanted to invent uh, this little like micro device. It was like a, a little pill that people could take. And it using all the chemicals in your body, it could create any medicines that you needed and it could release them into the bloodstream via some like wireless thing. I honestly, this was before computers and all this stuff. So I don't know where I got this idea, but that was my dream. And I was going to make it cost $1 so that everybody could have it. And, um, as I got older, I realized that, you know, there's no way I could ever get an, an I was did not have an engineering brain. So, um, but I think that that desire to help people, uh, in the best way possible, you know, and has really stuck with me. I really like that, especially as that's becoming closer and closer to reality. I've actually seen uh, some articles that, that they're designing these little, like, type of capsules that, like, live in your body, and, and you can access them via iPad. So it's it's crazy that I'm like, wait, I, was, I thought about that when I was a kid, you know? <laughs> so I, I love that. Um, and so where did you go from there? And what, what was the background that brought you to the work you're doing now? Well, you know, I think that... In my life, you know, I've had a lot of challenging life experiences, um, and I think by working through those things, I felt like that process was something that gave me a lot to offer other people, and so I wanted to use all of my personal experience and all of the things that have kind of forced me to grow as a person and heal as a person to help other people do the same thing, and so... um, I worked for two years at a wilderness therapy program, uh, and then I worked for another year and a half as a special ed paraprofessional at a high school. And then that kind of, you know, around that time, um, and I I had been, you know, interested in psychedelics for as long as I can remember, um, just because... You know, I was fascinated when I was really young, fascinated reading about how powerful these substances were in, in terms of expanding our awareness, uh, in terms of learning about ourselves, like the spiritual growth that was possible. All of that really captured my attention, especially in the difficult time that I was going through. And so having taken a really long break from all of that and, you know, being older, more mature um, and being like, you know, I think I want to go back to school and get properly trained and, you know, jump through whatever hoops are necessary in order to do this, what I would call like the right way, you know, and, and to make sure that, um, that I could, you know, hopefully, you know, at that time it wasn't super clear whether or not, you know, psychedelic therapy was going to be a thing. And, you know, luckily, uh, it is more and more 
becoming a reality. What was your focus when you went back to school, especially knowing that you're going to be embarking on a, a more different career path than most? So that was my kind of hope in the back of my mind, but um, I was trying to be as realistic as possible. And, and my father is also quite a traditional type person. He's a psychologist and you know, his main advice was like, look, you know, you need to get as, as broad an education as possible, go to an accredited program, um, you know, find out what is the current standard of care, and then you can branch out from there. And so, um, and so since I was living in Wyoming at the time, the University of Wyoming has an accredited counseling program. And uh, so I went there and you know, I've done tons of reading on transpersonal psychology and Stan Groff's work and, you know, I mean, I've read all that stuff. So, um, so it was interesting to be able to get the other side and kind of get a balance of what is more traditionally accepted in counseling and psychology. And I think, um, you know, from there, uh, I continued to, to seek out, you know, going to psychedelic conferences and, um, being in, getting involved with research. And, uh, I think through that, that really enabled me to continue to, to kind of pursue this, this dream of mine. And, um, and so I guess in the back of my mind, I didn't really expect that I would actually get to work in this field. Um, even though I, I felt like I was qualified, I was getting all the experience I felt I needed, but in the back of my mind, I was like, Oh, you know, just, getting this traditional education. Maybe I'll have to get more experience. Um, so it's really amazing just how it's worked out. And, and it's just, for me, it's really highlighted, you know, when people say, follow your dreams, you know, I, I, I finally understood what that meant, you know. <laughs> and so how did it come about that you got this current position where you're doing, as far as I know, the only place doing cannabis and ketamine therapy combined? Um, so... I've been working uh, with Alan Davis out of Johns Hopkins. Um, we've been working together, or rather I've been working for him um, in doing research on 5-MeO-DMT. And we had put together a presentation on integrating um, psychedelic experiences in psychotherapy. So we had developed this presentation, and of course that, that's really where my passion lies is, you know, how does therapy play a role in psychedelic assisted therapy? Uh, the actual relationship part, the part where, you know, things are being processed, the human aspect of it, not just the drug part. And so we went to a conference, the Omterra conference in Wisconsin. And the very first day I was having breakfast with Alan and this guy sat down next to me and it turns out it was Saj who has kind of started innate path and we started talking and and you know he's like he's like oh well you know what are, what are you presenting on I'm like oh integrating psychedelics into therapy and and he's like I was like well what do you do and he's like well I'm opening a ketamine cannabis assisted therapy clinic he's like do you want a job <laughs> and so you know we kind of connected after that and you know he saw the presentation and he was like okay he's like he's like let's let's meet one more time and see if this is a good fit. And so, yeah. So that's kind of, that's kind of how it happened. Wow. And so what was it like getting started there? It's been really exciting. I mean, I've only been there for a few weeks, um, but it every day just to me, just feels like a dream come true. I feel like I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing. Um, the the way the clinic is structured and the, what we're doing just really aligns with my personal values and my personal beliefs about this type of therapy. Um, you know, it's, you know, the, the clinic really isn't that focused on making money. We're really focused on helping people and, um, you know, and then the, the actual therapy itself because it's, because it's somatic focused, because it's body focused or bottom up. Uh, it really leads to complete healing and um, and that to me is just I just feel so excited and and blessed really to to get to do that kind of work, which is so 
unique and I think really could be the future of, of this type of therapy. And so the basis underneath it all is a somatic therapy uh, idea that you're working with. So what's it like working with those two very different psychoactives, cannabis and ketamine, still under that same umbrella framework? Well, um, what's interesting is that although they are different um, psychedelics, uh, you know, some people argue whether or not they are psychedelic, but they both definitely do have psychedelic aspects, especially when in that used in that setting. Um, I think the the difference oftentimes is that the cannabis is uh, a little bit rougher. It is tends to be very challenging f- for the more difficult content that gets processed. So um, it could be a little more difficult to work through things on the cannabis. But we're also seeing that when things are processed on the cannabis, it's extremely effective. So uh, with the ketamine, it tends to be a little bit more like what you might see, uh, like what we're seeing with the MDMA studies, where, um, you know, it reduces the fear response, allows for processing of, you know, more deeply held or deeply dissociated material. And... um, you know, reduces some of the pain associated with a somatic experiencing. So um, it, it really just depends on the person. And, uh, you know, they're, they're two different tools and they're used at different times uh, based on the individual and based on what, what their needs are. And how are each of these administered and what kind of uh, levels are they uh, being taken to? So the cannabis... Um, it, it really depends on the person. So the, the individual really gets to decide, um, you know, how much they're using. Um, a lot of people come and will use like a vape pen or something like that. Um, and so it doesn't really need to be a super high dose of cannabis um, or ketamine for that matter. The ketamine also uh, is a pretty low dose, is used sublingually for the most part. And um, there's... it's they're like little lozenges basically you put them under your tongue and so um and so you know we're finding that we also don't really need very high doses of the ketamine we really are just need enough to get the the uh logical rational mind out of the way and then the autonomic nervous system can take over so that's the basic concept of of how it works yeah it's interesting because I think both of these drugs are obviously psychedelic at really high levels and that you create a space where the high levels aren't as needed and they're still effective. And uh, especially with the ketamine, because I'm curious how many milligrams you're talking about here, because I think one of the most interesting things about ketamine is what a different animal it is at different doses. At low doses, it's kind of, you know, nice in your body thing. And at medium doses, you're kind of, your ego, your brain, your ego's circling the drain. And you're not that there. You kind of know what's going on. And then at the highest doses, you're completely removed from consensual reality, sometimes for something that feels like a really long time. And so for this, is sound like the stage two there in the middle is kind of the sweet spot you're going for and you can find it with even pretty low milligrams so what we're finding which is really interesting is that when you're doing somatic processing it puts the individual in an altered state um, immediately and so we're seeing that just with a little bit of either ketamine or cannabis on board um, we're seeing the, you know, the, you said kind of like three stages of ketamine. We're seeing people in stage three with a low dose that typically would put someone at like a stage one. Um, it's because of what we're doing with the individual. And so, uh, so really these altered states are, are really, you know, when people are using these substances outside of a therapeutic context, um, they're not getting you know, the, the prompting or the, uh, the focus on what's going on. And so taking these high doses kind of forces a type of experience on the individual where you no longer really have a choice of where you're going. Um, and so that kind of produces the complete out-of-body experience that you just have no choice over and you're just 
leaving your body and that's what's happening, right? Or with cannabis, you know, you smoke a lot of cannabis and you're just totally out of your mind for a while, right? Um, and so what we're finding is that when when we are combining this uh, the somatic experiencing process and the, the, the type of therapy that we provide, uh, we're actually, people are accessing those spaces voluntarily. And so we don't need to use super high doses of anything. And, and I think that that's also mirrored with the MDMA studies. Um, you know, the, the most recent study that came out, they found that the 75 milligram dose of MDMA was actually more effective in reducing PTSD symptoms than the 125 milligram dose. So what we're finding is really that um, it's not necessary to have this like super blast off type of, you know, saturated experience, but rather an experience that um, allows the individual to still have control over what's going on. And I think that when we when we add the somatic experiencing piece, it really just expands what's available. And can you tell us a little bit more about the history of somatic experiencing and how that is such a good fit for these psychoactives? Sure. In terms of the history of somatic experiencing, I'm not fully well versed in the whole history of it. Uh, but I do know that it, you know, it's a, a a part of psychology that kind of emerged after the more cognitive approaches. Uh, I think that what has happened is, you know, we have CBT, we have REBT, and these are, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, rational emotive behavioral therapy. And, you know, we have these, which are great tools for symptom management, right? So, you know, with CBT, you know, you're experiencing anxiety, you walk into a room, and you just are constantly preoccupied with what everybody else is thinking about you. Um, and so that creates these feelings of anxiety and you're, you can't, you can't be present because you're too worried about all these things, right? So a cognitive behavioral approach is going to be more focused on, okay, these are your symptoms. You know, what are the thoughts causing those symptoms and how can we stop those thoughts or how can we shift those thoughts so that you don't have these symptoms anymore? But I think what has been what we've realized is that, or what some people have realized is that when you do that, while you're taking the symptoms away, you're not really addressing the reason why those symptoms came up in the first place. And more and more, I think we're realizing that those types of symptoms come from a traumatic event or they come from some kind of adverse event that created this kind of loop or thought process that starts to interfere with regular functioning. And so the reason why somatic experiencing or somatic um, processing is so useful with psychedelic-assisted therapy is that psychedelic-assisted therapy, um, these psychedelics, they lower the rational mind and they lower the, the thinking and the story-making part of the brain and they give more control to the autonomic nervous system. And that's really where all of our subconscious and unconscious material is stored. And so when we have a traumatic event, right, um, kind of like, you know, let's say, an, let's say you were um, an antelope, right, and so a tiger comes and chases after you, and all of a sudden your nervous system spikes up, right, because you need to get get away. You need to run. And so your nervous system is pumping, your adrenaline is going, and you're running and running and running and running. And the nervous system maintains that level of activation until the nervous system finds a safe place. And so in the wild, what animals do is they'll find a safe clearing where there's no other animals around and they feel totally safe. And then they'll shake. Their whole bodies will start to shake. And that's releasing all this excess energy. It's releasing all this stuff that's, that's being stored in their body. But now, with humans, and this would be more of a theoretical thought, but I think human beings, our brains developed to be so powerful that, we, that it overrides a lot of these natural processes. So for human beings, when we experience a traumatic event, right? Like let's say you had a car crash. It was a super scary crash. Um, and so your nervous system, of course, gets activated because, oh my God, I'm going to die and there's nothing I can do about this. And so that 
moment of stress, um, the brain automatically is like, okay, I'm going to put this away. We're going to put this into the subconscious so that it doesn't affect your functioning, right? But if that never gets addressed, and if all that stored stuff doesn't come out, then it starts to come out in these odd ways. So we have, you know, certain, we have, manif we have PTSD, right? So we start to have these types of symptoms which start to interfere with our functioning. And so because we've kind of moved away from being able to just naturally shake it off, so to speak, um, you know, and, and maybe in the past, uh, the use of psychedelics in traditional cultures has to some degree had this kind of role is kind of like shaking out the nervous system and clearing out these things that, you know, haven't really been processed. So I think that, um, to kind of come, come full circle, uh, you know, I think that because psychedelics allow the autonomic nervous system to have a little bit more control disrupts the fear response. So we, we psychologically can go to these subconscious scary places with a su safe support. Um, then, you know, the, those processes are able to happen. And so kind of like what the clinic and what the therapy provides is basically that safe clearing where people can finally clear out their nervous systems and return to themselves, essentially. It's really beautifully said. And it actually reminds me of something in my personal life because I'm actually a new father. I have a baby girl at home and a magical midwife pointed me toward, to the book Tears and Tantrums. And it's all about how the best thing you can do for a kid is let them cry uh, when they're in the space, when they're not hungry or soiled uh, and they just need to shake off the day's uh, experiences, especially when it was a big day. Um, and as soon as we start doing that, everything changed. My kid went from being a pretty calm little kid to super calm and more alert and just shaking off that energy every day. And we look at each other and we're like, why aren't we doing this? This is exactly what we need. And it's something you hear about all the time from underground therapy sessions of something that would scare a therapist is not ready for it, but you give someone a moderate dose of LSD or MDMA or almost anything that allows them to just go into that uh, that state and the shakes come on and it's not fun to watch but actually it can be so cathartic for someone to get rid of this thing that that's stored in the body which is kind of the forgotten reservoir of this society mm -hmm. totally and um and just how you know because we don't really know how to do that it's not as intuitive because we have this super powerful rational mind that we've developed as adults um you know, it, it's that's why it's so helpful to be able to do it in a therapeutic context and to really gain those tools. So you're using your rational mind to help other people gain access to their body? To some degree, I think so. And I think that there's also a lot of felt sense that goes into the, the therapy sessions as well. You know, it's not it's not really a lot about thinking. It's more about feeling and, you know, feeling into what, what this person needs in the moment and um, and essentially just guiding them, guiding them to their nervous system. And at your clinic, you were saying earlier that you need to uh, go through these experiences yourselves with these medicines so you know what you're working with. What's that been like and how's it changed it for you as someone holding space? Yeah, so one of the most amazing things about the clinic is that, you know, all of the therapists there are doing their own work. And, you know, that's, that's a requirement is that we're clearing our nervous systems. And so the reasoning behind that is that the more regulated one nervous system is, the more safe another nervous system feels to process whatever it needs to. And so what we're finding is, um, is that even though cognitively someone may be like yeah i totally trust you but if the person that they trust has areas that are dissociated that person will more easily just dissociate rather than process so um and in terms of how it's been for me is i mean it's been probably the most useful therapeutic modality that i've ever worked with um you know i've and i've been in therapy for many years you know I just went through a master's program in counseling and just in terms of how much can be done in one session is 
astounding to me. Um, you know, and of course there's, there's definitely uh, a level of building up to it for a lot of people that maybe aren't ready to process everything. Um, and so it's not like a process that gets forced on somebody or like we try to make sure that it's matched to where people are at. Um, but at least for me, you know, having done so much personal work and then finally finding this modality, it's like, it's, it's like the missing link that finally completed so many processes that, you know, that I've been trying to do for so many years. It reminds me of something, uh, the secret chief, Dr. Zio Leff said that, a lot of the, the modalities and drugs out there are about sweeping problems under the carpet. And he was talking about MDMA, but I think it applies to all these that MDMA and ketamine, they're for taking the carpet out back and beating the hell out of it and getting that stuff out of there. And so that's why it's such an intriguing um, system that you're working with. What's it been like to start working with veterans as your clinic has recently started to do for a trial? Um, it's been pretty amazing. <laughs> Uh, we just, we've just started work, so we don't have, you know, any kind of concrete results yet, but just seeing, um, the receptivity of these veterans and these are individuals who have tried just about everything. Uh, and we're, we're currently working with a group called, uh, Veterans for Natural Rights. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but, um, they recently released a documentary called From Shock to Awe. And, um, you know, so we, um, it's it's just amazing to see the hope that it gives these individuals and um and also just speaks to the bravery for for you know people who have experienced some really really difficult things in life and really want to be healthy and be well and are willing to kind of I mean it's hard work you know it's it's not easy and um, and to see people that are totally dedicated and just ready to dive in, uh, it's really inspiring. And, you know, it, it also has highlighted for me the importance of, like I was saying before, is kind of this titration, right? Like the the work happens in maybe a, a different pace for different people. And I think that that's a good emphasis for some people that maybe would think about it or, or be like, you know, I don't want to be forced to re-experience my deepest trauma like first session you know and that's not that's not really what happens you know we we make sure that we process things in a way that you know is appropriate for each individual and so there's a lot of of therapy before you ever encounter a psychoactive in yours you get people ready for it yeah there is preparation and uh, we do orientation to make sure people understand like how this modality works we do practice sessions without medicine because you know like i was talking earlier the the modality itself was de designed to be done without medicine so um so we do a good amount of training to make sure that people are oriented they know what we're going to be doing they know what to expect and then you know. how much knowledge do people have of ketamine when they come through the door and how do you explain to people who have never really heard much about this drug besides maybe that it's a horse tranquilizer which isn't true <laughs> yeah so that's been a, a difficult thing um there's so many different perceptions of ketamine as as a medicine or drug or you know even substance of abuse and um so the way that we try to explain ketamine is that number one, it's a extremely safe medicine. I mean, it's given, it was originally actually developed to be used in humans, not in animals. It's been, it's used in veterinary medicine. Um, but you know, it's so safe that it's given to children. It's given to elderly people. Um, it's way safer than opiates in terms of for pain, uh, pain management, because it doesn't depress breathing at all. So there's no danger of, you know, stopping breathing. Um, it has a relatively short duration of action. So that really lends itself to doing therapy sessions where you're not having to be there for eight hours or something like that. Um, and in terms of why we would work with ketamine specifically is just because it, um, 
again, it, it kind of allows people to soften a little bit and, and feel that kind of safety and being held. And, um, and again, we don't really use super high doses of it. And I think that's another thing that, that is helpful for people is like, oh, okay, you're not going to like load me up, you know, like I'm not going to be blasted off. And, you know, there, there's still, um, there's still, there's an ability to kind of titrate the dose. It doesn't have to be this mega dose every time or, uh, and then in terms of, there's definitely people worry of it being uh, abused, for example, or they, um, you know, and what we find is that when people are doing this kind of work, uh, because the pain that is being held in the body is being released, there's less and less of a need to manage that pain through drug use or through anything else, right? So people sometimes have sex addictions or have compulsive behaviors, gambling, uh, shopping, you know, whatever it is, right? Um, when they're doing this work, all those things that people do to manage their pain is able to be reduced and they're able to um, live a more full life without those things. So, And it's interesting that this drug also can help relieve the source of the pain because it's one of the few treatments for chronic regional pain syndrome. So when people have something like a cluster headache of the body, they're taking lozenges of ketamine and it's uh from the World Health Organization list of uh, essential medicines because it's a non-toxic an uh, anesthesia. Um, but for all that good stuff, the, I think the abuse potential is really real. There's a reason it's called uh, the addictive psychedelic um, in the underground because even though technically it's, it's a dissociative drug, it can get psychedelic at high levels. And I always see ketamine as the double-edged sword of our generation. The therapy work you're talking about is so powerful because Raphael will be circumspect about the data because he doesn't have it yet. But I, uh, him and I both know from, I think, from being around the underground of people using this and just people telling their stories, it's incredibly uh, powerful for veterans especially. There's a reason there's so many veterans groups out there talking about this. Um, but on the flip side, once it starts infecting a scene like the electronic dance scene, it's incredibly psychologically addicting, but not at all physically addicting. And it's, it's such a, a fascinating drug. And um, yeah, I guess I'm curious if you're worried about any pushback from any uh, agencies about this or authorities. Um, I don't think so, because there are lots of clinics giving people ketamine. Um, it's a, actually a really common thing. There's lots of ketamine clinics, lots of people using ketamine specifically to treat PTSD and depression. Uh, we require people to have a formal evaluation done by a psychiatrist in order to receive. So it's not we're not just giving people ketamine who walk in. You know, they need to go through, um, you know, a medical process in order to get the ketamine. And so there's a lot of uh, restrictions. There's a lot of protocols there's a lot of protocols in place to ensure that you know it's being used appropriately and um i i did want to go back to something that you were saying you know how ketamine kind of infects these different scenes and um and and i think we need to start looking at we need to change the way we look at drugs and we need to change the way we look at drug use and not say that, oh, well, this drug is addictive necessarily, but this drug is effective, effectively managing people's pain. And the people who become dependent on ketamine or use it a lot typically are people that have experienced some pretty severe trauma. And, and the people that are, that are drawn you know, to electronic music scenes, for example, I mean, these are people who are drawn to using MDMA, for example. And MDMA, as we know, increases feelings of openness and connectedness. And a lot of times people who have been traumatized, that's what they're seeking. They're seeking connectedness. They're, they're trying to heal. They're trying to feel okay. And so when we demonize the use of these substances, um, sure, I mean, it can definitely be dangerous. It can definitely be damaging. But if we can say, well, they're using this substance for this reason and, and can't, can't we find a better way to administer these substances in a way that actually will be healing rather than perpetuating an addictive cycle, right? And so I think when, when people talk about people that become dependent on ketamine, um, I think a lot of times it fails. We fail to look at 
the reason why they're addicted to ketamine. Um, and so I think, yes, it's something that, you know, it's like, just like I think when MDMA was coming out, it, it was also kind of considered this kind of addictive drug that, you know, kind of have to stay away from it. It's not good for you. Neurotoxic, right? There's all these dangers to it. And, you know, and now we're finding that MDMA is perhaps one of the most useful tools in treating PTSD or treating trauma. So I think in the same way we have to start thinking about ketamine as a similar um, medicine of value. That's well, that's very well said. It's everybody has their reasons and there's a reason that this one's so effective. Um, Though I do think there is something particularly seductive about ketamine that does make it prone to people abusing it and taking it too far because it's such an easy one to remove yourself from your pain that you that one wants to start doing it all the time Um, but that would require somebody to have a significant amount of pain so before you got into this work you were talking let me start again so to go back to something you were saying earlier, before you got into this work, you were also looking at 5-MeO-DMT. Can you explain what that is and then what specifically you were researching? Sure. So 5-MeO-DMT is a psychedelic tryptamine found in nature as well as in the human body. Um, it is considerably more potent than NNDMT, which is the DMT that most people, when you say DMT, that's what they think of. Um, the DMT that would be in ayahuasca, for example. Um, 5-MeO-DMT is a really unique psychedelic in the sense that it doesn't produce the kinds of visual effects that NNDMT does, um, but rather tends to really reliably produce a powerful transcendent experience. And so the, the research work that I've been so lucky to be a part of um, started with a study that happened in um, Crossroads Treatment Center, which was in Mexico. And um, so they collected data on administering um, toad bufotoxin to, uh, to their patients. And so they were recording the scores that they gave on the mystical experiences questionnaire among some other things. And then we compared those scores. Um, and this study was led by Joseph Barsuglia. So we, uh, Joseph compared those scores to the scores from Roland Griffith's, um, psilocybin study. And the, I believe we were comparing the smoking cessation study. And so what we did was we were saying, well, you know, if, if mystical experience is, is a, an indicator of personal change then or you know treating addiction then we can correlate that and see and we found that 5-MeO-DMT did provide uh, powerful mystical experiences um, just as powerful or more powerful than psilocybin at you know what would be considered low to moderate doses of 5-MeO-DMT compared to a high dose of psilocybin so um, so I helped with that study, and then I was a part of another study which, uh, with Alan Davis, and I mentioned him a little bit earlier, but um, we put together a survey that was sent all over the world to just collect uh, epidemiological information on what people were doing in, t- in the use of 5-MeO-DMT. So we collected information on other drug use. We collected information on um, religious belief systems, on spiritual belief systems, collected all this information. And we're still in the process of analyzing some of it. The initial paper was published in the Journal of Psychopharmacology uh, this year, just a few months ago. And, um, and so we're in the process of, of analyzing some other aspects of data and, and getting that published. And so, yeah, so that's been the 5-MeO-DMT side of work. And you mentioned the toad earlier and them getting the toad toxin uh, because the, the toad is one of the source, natural sources of 5-MeO, correct? Yeah. And, you know, I think, 
I've said this before, I've said this in other places, but I'll, I'll say it again that, you know, um, the, the harvesting of toad bufotoxin has become problematic and, you know, with the growing popularity of this medicine is definitely endangering this population. And, um, you know, it's just seeing some pretty concerning practices, uh, come out. And, um, so, you know, it's one of those things where the synthetic 5-MeO, uh, when people use it, tend to have a little bit more control over dosing and, uh, and then aren't having that kind of environmental impact. Yeah, the sacrifices of toads for humans to see gods doesn't sound right. Yeah, it's one of those things that I feel is such a contradiction uh, in the, some of the psychedelic world is sometimes the, the things that people do or the lengths that people go to in their own seeking completely disregards the impact that they have either on other people or on the ecosystem or, or whatever, you know, and I think that if we look at what the overall messages of these medicines are of, of this, of personal work, of spiritual work is really to respect all life and to respect our place as a part of life. And, um, and so I think the more things that we can do to be sustainable, to be respectful and to be honoring of these wonderful things. I mean, I think the toads to some degree kind of lit the light bulb of like, wow, this molecule is really powerful, is really useful. And because we know what the molecule is, um, I think it can be used without having to impact these ecosystems. Because it's often called the God molecule. And what's it like for you to be studying something that has so much buzz around it in the modern psychedelic world, but also has such ancient practices attached to uh, using it as well? Well, the thing is that it really doesn't have much of an ancient tradition of use. Oh, um, well, here we go. So, uh, you know, it's been used in snuffs uh, for probably several thousand years but it's never been used in in as high concentrations as it's being used uh probably within the last um 30 to 40 years and that's really the only that's the only period of time that we actually know that human beings have been taking what we would consider breakthrough doses of 5-MeO-DMT okay so before it was more like the Incans chewing coca leaves and getting a moderate amount of stimulation effect would be the snuffs of the yes. previous yeah. use. Right. So they would, you know, I'm sure they would get powerful psychedelic effects because there's other tryptamines in there as well. So you kind of, I'm sure, have this entourage effect of, of tryptamines with a lot of these snuffs. But in terms of, you know, the full-on 5-MeO breakthrough, you know, this is actually a really new phenomenon for human beings to be experiencing and the 5-MeO itself is quite short. I mean, a little bit longer than NNDMT, but it's still in the 10 to 15 minute range. More like 15 to 30. Yeah. So a little bit longer, uh, depending on the route of administration. Um, but yeah, I, we didn't finish your first question though, because you said, well, what is it like studying something that has so much buzz around it? Oh yeah. 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 It's a, kind of a double-edged sword. It's really exciting to be studying something that has so much buzz around it. And it's also a little bit alarming um, that people are using this more and more. And I'm doing research on it and realizing like how little we actually know about it. And so many people claiming that they know what they know about it and um, really having no data on any of it. You know, we really don't know. And, uh, you know, there have been no... Uh, pharmacokinetic studies done in humans so we don't even know what's what's going on you know we don't know if people are using toad bufotoxin we don't know what else is in the vapor you know like a lot of that hasn't really been done or formally published so I think you know for me there's like a great deal of a desire to to know more I think that there's great potential and um my hope is that, you know, um, it will be approved to be studied formally. 
in a controlled setting before it's being used with as many people are are using it now i think um obviously there's nothing we can do about underground use or experimentation and and whatever people are doing but um you know i think in terms of being someone who's researching it that's one of the kind of things that has come out of it is just kind of a concern of like well in a sense it's popularizing this that's not the intention of the research the intention of the research is to be like hey maybe there's a good reason for us to to study this legally and formally you know with the appropriate um constraints so yeah i guess it's it's kind of that double-edged sword and one question i want to leave on because i get asked it all the time by hopeful young students who want to get into the therapy business and be doing the kind of work and research that you're doing what would your advice be to a young person who wants to be administering these kind of medicines well um i guess it depends on what kind of you know how you want to do this work and and how you want to be involved you know i think for those people that are more interested in the, in the drugs themselves you know maybe going through the the psychiatry route getting a degree in psychiatry and um then you'd be more working with the drugs directly but if you're more interested in working with people um you know i think counseling is an amazing route maybe even more so than psychology because counseling has a very strong person-centered philosophy and i think that a lot of psychedelic work is very person-centered you know we want to give as much power to the individual as possible um and as much as it was difficult for me to go through a traditional program it was super super helpful for me to be well versed enough in these traditional or more accepted forms of therapy such as CBT or person centered therapy or talk therapy in general um and to me I feel like it allows me to have one foot in both worlds and to hopefully be able to translate the amazing insights um and benefits that we're getting from psychedelic assisted therapy and maybe more transpersonally oriented modalities and and translate them into uh you know what the more generalist uh would understand and so i i think and and because i think that this this type of therapy is so useful we need to have language and we need to be able to communicate it to people that have very little understanding to it so my my advice would be you know go through a graduate program um it doesn't have to be neuropa it doesn't have to be ciis um you know go to an accredited program if you can because the typically those programs number 1 have funding so you can you could potentially get a master's degree for free um and you know attend psychedelic conferences talk to people that you're interested in read the research and start connecting with the researchers that inspire you you know connect with the researchers that you're like wow this is a really cool study or this is really cool stuff like how do i get involved with that right and i think just being a graduate student opens a lot of those doors and a lot of the researchers that are doing it i mean we're going to need a new generation of of people that are passionate about this and are willing to be disciplined you know and um so you don't have to break your bank i don't think um like but but you do need to be trained and i think having clinical supervision and clinical experience is invaluable um to be able to do this work in an ethically responsible way and in a way that um that is going to be helpful and not harmful to people so definitely uh get your masters connect with other researchers attend conferences uh read read journal articles don't don't read editorials about the journal articles read the actual articles that people wrote um because if you're interested in this research if you're interested in this stuff like you're going to be writing those papers too you know and so being familiar with that the structure of these papers is going to be really useful um and then when you when you take a stats class you're going to be like oh i know i know what that is and i know what this is cuz i've read all these papers that use all the statistics right and and then it'll all make sense um so read uh read connect with people 
um, email, email researchers, you know, like just shoot them an email, let them know that you care about what they're doing, that you're interested. Um, and, you know, and, and have a broad level of expertise, you know, like I did my internship at a really, I did it at a hospital, you know, I worked, um, in the psych unit at a hospital and, um, you know, using what it was considered, you know, the, the, the very best tools and therapies that, that we have to treat the worst and most severe mental illness. And, um, and that experience to me has felt super useful because when I see people coming in with all these different types of symptoms, I'm able to see them through several different lenses and able to communicate with many different people about what might be going on. So, um, I hope that's helpful to people and, uh, I'm really excited that other people are excited about this kind of work. And my hope is that people who are excited can be, have that excitement with some temperance and like approach this work, not as like an end all be all, but just an adjunct to the foundations that have already existed. You know, I don't think that this is about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. This is about like making the bathwater a little bit warmer. So the baby isn't crying so much. Right. <laughs> I, I deeply feel your metaphor as having a six month old at home. Um, <laughs> well, thank you. I, that is excellent advice. And I hope you inspire others to, to follow this path. Uh, Raphael, thank you so much for coming and talking to us and for doing the good work. Thank you so much for having me. It's been super fun. Greener Grass is a Bluebird Botanicals podcast. Their CBD oil supports a healthy body and a strong endocannabinoid system. They've got friendly customer service who can answer any of your questions, and the number is right there at the top of their webpage. But, per the FDA, they won't be able to make any medical claims for these nutritional supplements. That's also the reason you'll hear little about CBD on this show. There's no need for us to add more evidence about CBD when a simple Google search will give you more than you can read in a month of Sundays. So this show covers the cannabis world and more with editorial freedom from Bluebird Botanicals. Thanks for joining the Greener Grass podcast. As always, our audio alchemist is Matt Payne. The Gypsy Jazz theme music comes from Brett Van Donsel. Our beautiful bird sounds are courtesy of Lang Elliott, and I'm your host, Lex Pelger, wishing you a bright green day. <laughs>